0: Um, well, it is that time of year. It's a, it's a fun time uh, of, of the year that we get to focus on Jesus Christ um, in a way that's not unique because uh, everyone, even non-believers, this time of year have something about Jesus going on in their minds. You could walk into Target and hear songs about the incarnation of Jesus Christ playing on the radio. That You could see nativity scenes set up uh, with Christmas lights around in different neighborhoods. So everyone kind of has Jesus on their mind or or some idea of the Christ child or the sentimental stories of Christmas. Uh, We, as the Christian church, get to zero in on the true meaning of Christmas, the true Jesus. Uh, To kind of introduce this series that we'll be doing over the next few weeks, I want to draw your attention to what I think most of us experienced over the last couple of weeks, and that is the power of a storm. Some of you guys experienced the rainfall. Uh, some of you experienced the storm in, um, in, uh, out of state. That was my family. Uh, it was amazing to Ashley and I, as we were heading into Colorado for the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, we were having to pass this, uh, go up this mountain to get into Denver, where we were going to stay for the next few days. And as we were heading up, all of a sudden, the snow began to fall. I'm a Southern California kid. This white stuff falling from the sky confuses me. I didn't know what to do. We were driving, and I'm looking at Ashley, and, and she's looking at me, and she's texting my mom, who's in the car in front of me, trying to figure out, are we going to keep driving in this? I didn't know whether we should stop. Uh, when, when do you call today? When do you turn in? I didn't know, so I'm just following my dad. And, and finally, it's getting to the point where all the wives texting each other in the three cars that were in this caravan, they made the decision. We're stopping. And so we pulled off. The snow's coming down. And it uh, turns out even the local said, yeah, you don't want to drive in this. You're heading right into a storm. And we pulled off and we had to stay the night in an inn about 45 minutes from our destination. And uh, one of the things that we, we reflected on, Ashley actually said this that night as we, we kind of unpacked and we just kind of settled into the reality, I guess we're sticking to the, a night here. Um, she said, isn't it amazing how God can like that stop everyone? Roads closed well We didn't know how much of a foreshadowing that would be to the second half of our trip when we tried to get home And the 70 was closed and the 285 got closed and the 25 got closed and the 40 got closed We ended up having to drive through Phoenix to get from Colorado back to LA Um, Do the geography. I mean there's there's a a little bit of a detour there and so storms Can change life storms are powerful with God's voice with his command. He can let the storehouses of his his storm fall upon us and alter our lives. He can shut down everything at his will. You realize that uh, a typical thunderstorm, those who study these things, have said that a typical thunderstorm has about the same uh, amount of power uh, as the atomic bomb
1: that obliterated
0: Hiroshima. Uh, every thunderstorm has in it all kinds of power that is being unleashed on the world. And they who study these things have also said that any given day around the world, there's about 1,800 lightning storms going on. So that's, that's, that's like nuclear bombs, thousands of them happening all around our planet all the time that are harnessed in these storms that God creates and we're amazed by these things. We, some of us, when the storm comes, like to, to hide inside a nice cozy room, and there are others that want to go right into the storm. You want to get an up-close look, right? You want to feel the, the wind blowing against your body and feel how powerful it is. You like to feel small. Some of you enjoy the lightning storms out on the horizon because you're amazed at what power is out there. And then if we think about our world and all the the energy and all the storms that are around our world all the time, you could even zoom out a little bit, just just imagine. And let's imagine you get into outer space and you imagine the kinds of force and power that are are out there. They are uh, scientists, astronomers, have discovered uh, what we call supernova. Uh, uh, They say our atomic bombs are about 50 megatons and they have figured out a way, don't ask me how, to measure the energy of a supernova and have come up with a a number, a staggering number, that one supernova puts off about 24 octillion megatons of energy. You ever counted two octillion before? That's a 24 with 27 zeros following it. I actually looked up another way to say this. It actually sounds like a number my kids made up. You could also say it this way. It's a thousand, trillion, trillion, a billion, billion, billion. That's the amount of energy in a supernova when that thing goes. Now, think about this for a second. Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes <laughs> that God spoke a supernova into existence, a universe into existence, with billions of stars and galaxies all around, each one of them representing millions and billions and octillions of energy. And God spoke those things into existence. How powerful is he? And then he says that his power channels through this message he calls his gospel. Good news. The gospel is God's power. God's power. The supernova is not God's power. Oh, it's God's power in the sense that he created, he controls it. But if you want a picture of how powerful our God is, you can look at all those things as a parable, as symbolic, as pointing to his power in the gospel. You, you you may wonder why we always are talking about the gospel around here. Because there's no message that's more powerful, life-changing, transformative than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about the gospel, maybe in a way that's a, a newer than you've thought of it, maybe looking at angles you haven't considered before. I, I kind of feel like the guy who's got the nuclear bomb, and I'm going to open it up and kind of try to show you around and make sure I don't ruin everything and blow it up i want to show you something that has power unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life i want to show us i want to look together and meditate on the good news about jesus christ what he has accomplished and 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 my prayer has been that this wouldn't be oh yeah i've heard this before i got that message I'm, I'm a Christian. I got the gospel already. As Mark reminded us last week, you don't only need the gospel to get saved. You need the gospel all day, every day, all through your life to be reflecting on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So here's our goal. Over the next three weeks, we are going to behold Jesus Christ. You might think, of course, it's Christmas, but we might do this in a way that you're not anticipating. I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The title of our sermon is Jesus, Our Substitute. It's appropriate, I believe, during the time that we reflect on the incarnation to think about the purpose of the incarnation as well. You can even think of Simeon in Luke chapter 2 when he's talking to Mary about the come the, the Messiah who has come and he is reflecting on who he is and he makes these amazing statements and then it's almost as if he looks to Mary and he mentions in Luke chapter 2 that a sword will pierce her as well that even in the talk about this coming Messiah the incarnation there was this shadow the shadow of a cross, that from the very beginning of his coming, there would be not only uh, the amazing miracle of an incarnation, but the amazing accomplishments of a cross. I think it's appropriate in this holiday season to not just think about the incarnation, but to think also about what he came to do. So you're in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we are going to focus on half of a verse, And then next week, the other half of the verse. But let's read 2 Corinthians 5.21a, the first half. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Let's stop there. What's happening? For our sake, this is describing something God has done for his people, It's describing how God is acting on behalf of his people for their good. What did he do? He, that's God the Father, made him, that's God the Son. These are the people involved, two members of the eternal Godhead. God the Father makes God the Son, what? To be sin. This doesn't mean that God the Father forced the Son to sin. This doesn't mean that he uh, was a sinner himself. It means that God and his Son had an agreement that the Father would impute, would transfer, would credit the sins of his people to his Son. God made his son, though he knew no sin, to be sin. Why? For our sake. I use that word, the imputation. Imputation, you heard that word? I preached a sermon on this uh, several years ago at a summer camp, and there were junior hires involved, and at the end of it, you know, you know, sermons with junior hires involved can be an interesting thing. At the end of the sermon, I had some of these kids sitting around, these boys. And I said, "All right, what'd you get out of this?" One of them raised their hand and said, "Why did you keep talking about amputation?" <laughs> and and I went and crawled into a hole and didn't come out for the rest of the winter. Imputation is the word that we're talking about here. The idea of imputation is this: that, that that something is truly transferred to another. It is truly credited to a different account. And what is happening here, what is being described, is that God the Father is truly transferring sin, the sins of the people that he loves, his children, to his son. He is transferring it to him. He didn't know any sin, the son didn't commit any sin. He didn't. Forced to do any sin, but if you think of accounts, all the sin that was in the accounts of his beloved children was removed from them, and it was truly, really transferred and credited to the account of the Son of God, namely Jesus Christ. This is critical to understanding the gospel, Uh, the, the doctrine of imputation. The idea, the concept of imputation is really critical for us to understand how we are saved and how we are reckoned to be righteous before a holy God. There's three imputations that are described in the Bible. The first is the imputation of Adam's sin to all humanity. The Bible teaches this. It's very clear in Romans chapter 5. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read some of the verses so you don't have to. The Bible is very clear that when Adam sinned, all sinned. It teaches that in Adam all died. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You say, who sinned? Well, Adam sinned. Originally, it was a sin in the Garden of Eden. But Romans is telling us, Paul is writing, all men sinned there in Adam. Chapter 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, he says. For if many died through one man's trespass, he goes on to explain what he's talking about there, but his point is to say, many died through one man's sin. That is, in Adam all fell. In Adam all died. Verse 19 of the same chapter. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. Case closed. This is the Bible's teaching. Whether we like it as fair or call it fair, the Bible's really clear that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam fell, we all fell in Adam. When Adam died, we all died in Adam. And we are born guilty of original sin. That's the theologian's word. We are guilty of original sin. Now, we can't protest that because we're also guilty of actual sin. We are sinners, the Bible teaches, by nature because we share Adam's fallenness, and we are sinners by choice, because we've chosen it ourselves. If you ever doubt the doctrine of original sin, raise a kid. Watch that eight-month-old, though he cannot yet speak, try to overthrow the house. They do that. They scheme. They're cunning and sly. I understand how that works. We're born sinners. We're born sinners by nature and by choice. This is the Bible starts by an unashamed declaration that all have sinned, all are fallen, all are guilty. Now, if you come to, came to church this morning and you're not a Christian, you're like, wow, this is bad news. Do they come to hear that they're sinners every week, you might be thinking. I would ask you, though, wouldn't you agree that there's sin in the world? And if you're honest, wouldn't you agree that there's sin in your own heart? I'm sure you've probably, even you who don't profess to be a Christian at all, I'm sure you would agree with the experience that many of us have had that after sinning, you felt a tinge of guilt in your conscience. The question I as a Christian friend would ask you non-believer what do you do with your guilt see the Bible teaches that sin is real it's a real problem it really has separated us from God it has set us in rebellion it is the biggest problem you and I face it is the biggest problem in our world sin it's there Now what we do when we gather as Christians and what we believe when we speak about this good news, this gospel, we are not talking about a moral improvement program. We are not talking about ways to find your purpose or to live a higher life. We are not talking about those things. Christianity is fundamentally about dealing with the real problem of real sin against a real holy God. It is about what Jesus has done for us in history, actually in his life, death, the resurrection. It is how God saves sinners. It's how God saves sinners. Now I want to start by looking in the Old Testament. We're going to look at this idea of imputation because I want to make sure we understand that Christianity is not just a self-improvement program. We are saying here as Christians that sin exists against the holy God. And yet, God has made a way to deal with our sin. And all throughout the Bible, he has taught us, revealing himself to us and what he demands from us and how he is going to deal with our sin. And the idea, the concept of imputation is all throughout the Bible. Let's go to Leviticus, just to start, let's say. You could turn to where the, they talk about the Day of Atonement. Jews even today will recognize the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Well, that has its roots in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, where the rituals that the Jews were instructed to do by God were, are laid down. It starts by describing a priest. We're going to kind of pick the pertinent verses here so you can see what's going on. A priest was to take a bull, one bull, and two goats. Okay, the bull was to take, or the, not the bull, the bull didn't take anything. The, the Aaron, the high priest, in chapter 16, verse 11, started by sacrificing that bull. He would take a bull and two goats. The bull was the first to go. He would present that bull, it says in verse 11, as a sin offering. See that? and make atonement for himself. He shall kill the bull, it says, as a sin offering for himself. The the priest would slaughter that bull, and he would think as he's killing this live animal, as the blood is being spilled, he would think this bull is dying in my place because of my sin. Then he'd take the first goat. Look over to verse 15. The first goat, what happens to him? It says, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its... Do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it over the mercy seat, in front of the mercy seat. This first goat would die, essentially, for the sins of the people. It was a symbolic thing that God had arranged in Israel so that the people could see in graphic detail the consequence of sin. First, a bull is dying for the sins of the priest. Second, a goat is going to die. The blood is going to be spilled. Why? It is happening on behalf of the people. You see this in the latter part of verse 16. It is for the transgressions, all their sins, it says. This is happening for the people of Israel. Their sins are in symbol being imputed to the goat, and the goat is dying, symboling, symbolizing the sin being paid for. Look down to verse 21. This is the second goat. That first goat dies, blood gets spilled. Second goat, Aaron, high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel in all their transgressions and all their sins. You can imagine that. If you weren't an Israelite and you saw that happening, you'd think, who are these people and why are they talking to goats? They would pull the goat out, hands would be over the live goat, and they would begin talking uh, to this goat. Uh, He wasn't actually talking to the goat, but they would be confessing their sins. All the sins, the national sins of the people of Israel, would be symbolically, follow this, transferred, imputed to this second goat. He shall it says, put on. Them on the head of the goat. You see that? Put them on the head of the goat. And then what would happen to this goat? This goat wouldn't die before them, or at least they wouldn't slaughter it. It says here, he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hands of a man who is in readiness. Listen to this, verse 22 the goat shall bear all their iniquities on himself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, that goat would die out there. It was a way of putting the goat to death, but it was just a different way of doing it. First goat gets all the sins, and the goat dies. Blood is spilled. The goat is a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. Second goat gets all the sins of the people of Israel, placed on it symbolically, imputed to that goat, and then that goat is banished. That goat is forsaken. That goat is left out and put out to die in the wilderness alone. Why is God arranging these weird rituals? Why is God in the Old Testament putting all these strange stories about how his ancient people did these weird, bloody rituals? What's the point of this? Listen, all of this is foundation for us to understand what's happening in Jesus' life. This is helping pave away. way that understands for us the gospel message and the work of Christ on the cross. Why? Because not in a symbolic way will Jesus take our sins. The doctrine of imputation of our sins to Christ is that God makes Christ to be sin, though he knew no sin, as we read. And so in a real way, the Bible in the New Testament teaches that Jesus... Steps forward as God's chosen one who will bear the sins of his people. He will not live through this. He will bear the sins, and like the first goat, he will be killed, and like the second goat, he will be banished. Why? So as to deal with the sins of his people. This is what the New Testament is describing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins, to bear them, to, to put them on himself, they are imputed to him and he bears them, he bears the sins of many. Isaiah prophesying hundreds of years before the life of Christ would say it like this, surely he has Born our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Listen to this. And the Lord... Is laid on him the iniquity of us all, imputation, imputation. He made him who knew no sin, sin for us. He made him sin. He credited our sin to his account. I want to now look to think about this. I want to, for the rest, of, uh, hopefully the concept of imputation is clear in your mind. You understand what it is. It is a true transfer where God takes the sins of his people, removes all of them from them, and then places it on his son, and his son suffers the punishment for those sins. Hopefully we get that idea. That's imputation. Okay? That's the doctrine of our sins being imputed to Christ as our substitute. Now I want to zero in to the cross. I want to look at as the imputation is happening and as God is reacting to his son as the sin bearer, I want to look at this. Matthew 27. Just to get the the imagery in our minds. We're at the crucifixion now. We're on a hill outside Jerusalem. There's three crosses there. Jesus is in the middle. Friends, that's your savior up there. I want to stand, as it were, at the foot of that cross. I want us to try to get our imaginations going, to see this. He's beaten up. He's bloody. This is our Savior. He's a 33-year-old Jewish man. Worked most of his life as a carpenter. We know he's God incarnate. As we're seeing him, his hands are... Red with blood. His head looks brutalized. It's probably droplets of blood coming down from there as his scalp has been scraped open by thorns. His back is probably raw from the whips and scraping against that splittery beam. His feet are pierced through. You can see him there, he's heaving can't get enough air in, he's suffering, he's really suffering. Matthew 27, 45 says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, three hours of darkness in the land in the middle of the day. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli lemma sabachthani, which is my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? That little baby that that they celebrated at Christmas at the first manger scene has grown up. He's done all the things that we've read about in the gospels. Now he's dangling on a cross, suffering like we've never known in our lives. And there's more than meets the eye that's happening there. Because you can see the blood, and you can see the nails, you can see the scrapes, you can see all that, you can see the mockings, and you you can see all that, but you also know, we know that something else is going on, because we know that God made him sin. Okay? God made him sin. He didn't know sin, but God made him sin for us. So we know that something spiritual is going on here. That this is more than physical suffering that's happening on the cross. And as we're watching what's happening, okay, in our mind's eye, we're seeing the cross. I want to draw your attention to four things here that are happening on the cross. First, here's what's happening. Jesus is being treated like a vile sinner. You say, of course he is. The Romans would beat him up. The Jews wanted him crucified. Of course, they're treating him like a sinner. No, no, no. I'm not talking about what the Jews and the Romans did. I'm saying God the Father is treating His Son, who is perfect, who had never sinned, who had never once for a split second committed any crime. He is being treated now as a vile, filthy sinner. We read it already, Isaiah 56, or 53, six. Sin has been laid on Him like a giant, filthy, disgusting burden. It, the text says he bears the sin. It's upon him. Galatians 3.13, he became a curse. This is mysterious. The, the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21 are beyond us. He not only bore sin, not only became a curse, the, the text says he became sin. In the eyes of God, he is the embodiment of all the sins of all God's children. No, no. If you're a Christian, you hate sin. When it creeps up in your own heart, you hate it. You want to do something about it. You want to repent. You want to change. It even will make you sick sometimes. It'll just make you ache to to be caught in sin. And yet all our lives we've been dealing with this. We, 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 in a sense, know what it's like to walk as sinners in a fallen world. But think about Christ. You know, in a sense, he's the least prepared to deal with being sin. He had never been sin. He had never sinned once. He is the perfect, pure, holy, spotless lamb. Would anyone hate sin more than him? And here on the cross, can you imagine the gut-wrenching sense that I am now being counted as an abject sinner? The anguish that he must have felt in his soul. On the cross, he's being treated, though he had not sinned once, as if he was the liar, as if he was the blasphemer, as if he was the lazy one, the glutton, the fornicator, the cheater, the thief. He's being treated as if he had committed all those sins, though he had not ever committed one of them. Could you imagine broken heart of our Savior. You look at the cross. Guys, your sins are there. They're being nailed right there with them. There are my sins on that cross. And Jesus is being punished for my sins. He's being treated as if he committed my sins. That's not all that's happening. Think about this. Second, we look up on that cross and we see what? He's really dying. Jesus is really dying on the cross. I think those of us who, who love to reflect on the person of Christ might, might sometimes fall into an error. We're, we're not like those people who just deny outright that Jesus died. Some people do that. But what we maybe do is we reflect on the deity of Christ to the degree that we leave out the fact that he was human. He wasn't a superman that could not suffer that he's just impervious to any pain. He's not that. He really became a man. This is the incarnation. He really took on flesh, and he took on flesh that was killable, flesh that could suffer, flesh that could hurt and feel pain and die. He's there on the cross. He's really dying. Don't, don't leave that out, he's actually dying. Maybe some of you have been in a room and you've watched the, the breath of a loved one get slower and slower and the machine's hooked up to the body, the beeping is getting more and more infrequent and you have watched a loved one die. And then you look there in the hospital bed and there's a body, it's not working anymore. Lungs aren't breathing, the brain waves aren't going, the heart's not beating, it's it's dead. That happened to Jesus. No, really, that happened. He was beat up enough to die by the beatings that he took. He was beat up to the degree that they took his life, they killed him there. The agony of nails and thorns and a spear and suffocation. He's really in pain on the cross. He's not the Superman that's acting like he's all in pain, but it's really all charade. He was man, and he is dying. He is there. He looks pathetic on the cross, doesn't he? He looks totally pathetic and helpless, like he can't save himself. Of course we know. He could have. At any moment, he could have called a legion of angels and they would have freed him. But there he is, incarnate God on the cross, being debased by rugged, godless men. You look at his face, there's human spittle on it, defiling him, and at a flick of his finger, he could undo it all, and he doesn't. He's dying there. He's really dying there. What do you think about the death of Christ? This is what he has come to do. Does it make you think less of, of God that he would suffer in this way? Such indignity? Oh, it should make us think so much higher. I, I love this quote by John Stott. I'm, I'm moved every time I read it. He, he writes, reflecting on the death and suffering of Christ, he writes, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God of the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for. Us. This is the incarnation. This is why he came, to really die. Here's the third thing that's happening on the cross. He, he's being treated by, as a vile sinner. He's really dying. Third, he's being forsaken. Remember that goat, that second goat? All the sins are transferred to it, and it is left in the wilderness. It is banished. It is forsaken to die alone. What's happening on the cross? He cries out what? Why have you forsaken me? He is being forsaken right there. The the, the sins of his people have been imputed to him. And in that moment, God is expressing divine wrath against him. And a, a part of that divine wrath is God forsaking him there's a faint analogy that maybe you've experienced in your own life maybe maybe you've experienced someone that you've loved to turn away from you or hurt you maybe even some people have been raised in families where a father who was supposed to love supposed to love you left you abandoned you many of us can't fathom what is actually happening with christ this perfect relationship that had only been perfect in all eternity, all eternity past, perfect for this moment on the cross as Jesus is the, is the sin-bearer, the, the Father is forsaking. Mystery of mysteries. The, the Father is forsaking the Son. We, we can't even fathom what this would be like. Can you imagine your beloved Father, the one that you've, you've looked up to, one that you've grown up with, one that has been a provider for you all your life, one that you've admired, one that you've loved. And he turns to you one day and he looks at you in the face. He says, get out. I'm banishing you from my presence. I'm banishing you from my presence of blessing. And now what there will be for you is the presence of judgment. That's what's happening on the cross. He's being forsaken by the father. He's being banished. He's being left there. Darkness falls. Here's the fourth thing that's happening. This is wrapping it all together. Jesus is paying sin's penalty. That's what he's doing there. He is dying for the sins of his people. He's dying for your sin. All your sin. The sins of your past that you've forgotten. The sins of your past that haunt you. The sins of your present that you know about. And the sins of your present that you are unaware of. The sins of your future that you have not yet committed, that you don't even anticipate. All those sins wrapped up like a giant burden, and they are placed on his back, and he is bearing them, and he is dying for them. The wrath of the Father for sin is being poured out on him. He is paying the penalty that you and I deserve for all those sins. He is dying for you, he's paying the penalty for you, Christian. Have you ever wondered if Jesus is just indifferent to your problems? He he couldn't care about me. He doesn't care about what is going on in my life. I'm just wee little old me. I'm not that significant to him. He doesn't love me that much. Look at the cross and see your sins there. That he has loved you to that great degree that he would go to the cross and pay sin's penalty for you. The lengths he will go for sinners. What great lengths he will go. He will be a champion for us. He will fight for us. He will be an absolute hero in our place. He will not buckle under the pain or the pressure of the cross. He will be there dying for us, and he will not give up under the weight of a million sins. What a Savior. And so we like to sing songs like this, Bearing Shame. And scoffing, rude, in my place, condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. He did it all. He is not indifferent to your suffering. He's not indifferent to your sin. He's not indifferent to you. Look at the cross where he accomplishes all this for us. The judgment that was scheduled to take place at the end of human history for you got rescheduled. And the judgment that you faced for your sin was transferred off of you to Jesus. And he was judged in your place, smack dab in the middle of history. The judgment has already happened for you, Christian. You need not fear judgment anymore. It's already happened. Your sin has been paid for. The judgment for your sin and the condemnation for your sin and the hell that you would have paid for your sin was poured out on Jesus. You have no wrath left to face at all. Not a drop. Nothing. Zero. All the cup of the wrath of God for your sin is fully and completely emptied. You could take that cup, and sometimes you try to empty a cup, and there's still a drip in there. You try to empty it a little more, and even if you get some of it, it accumulates, there's a little more still at the bottom of that cup. I can't get it all out. Some of us are acting like there's still a little bit that we got to pay. Still a little bit of wrath for me. I'm doing all I can to get as much as I can out of that cup, but but I still got to pay for some of my sin. No, you don't. This is the gospel. All sin removed from you. All your sin put on Christ. All of it completely, totally paid for by him. Not you. This is beautiful. So you think about the the cradle. Think about the cradle in view of the cross, right? Think about what's happening in the manger in view of what's going to happen on that hill outside Jerusalem. He's coming to do that. He's coming to accomplish that for us. Think about what he's doing, taking your sins, being banished from the presence of God so that you can be brought in to the presence of God. We need to say this. Uh, I hate that we need to say this, but because there's, there's people who are parading around as Bible teachers saying crazy things about the atonement, we have to address this. There are some who call this doctrine cosmic child abuse as if the son is some unwilling, poor kid whose abusive father forces him to suffer in ways that he did not want to suffer to accomplish some strange purposes that he had. Writer of the song, Beautiful Things, artist by the name of Michael Gunger said, I love, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering his son in that endeavor. Stop singing about the wrath of God poured out on the sun, please. Stop think, singing about the bloody cross, please. He goes on, I simply think blood sacrifice is a very limited and less than timely metaphor for what the cross can mean in our culture. He doesn't like Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. William Paul Young, author of the best-selling book, The Shack, a book that packages abject heresy in a nice little appealing story, he said this, who originated the cross. If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser who in his divine wisdom created a means of torture for human beings in the most painful and abhorred manner. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refused to acknowledge or grant credibility in any, any sense, and rightly so, better no God at all than this one. They can't imagine a God who would punish his own son to bring salvation to his people. And this is a growing movement among us, friends. uh, There is a growing group of professing progressive Christians that want a bloodless Christianity, a wrathless God, a meaningless cross. And it all is gutting the gospel. Listen, if there's No blood sacrificed. We are still in our sins. If the imputation of our sins to Jesus didn't really happen, we're still stuck. Our sins haven't been paid for. The gospel is saying to us that Jesus has come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That anyone who trusts in him can have their sins removed from them, placed on Christ, and paid for in full. We believe that age-old gospel. Jesus died for my sins. The blood is enough for me. There's power in the blood. We believe in the cross of Christ as the place where the sins of all God's people were paid for in full. We glory in the cross. We sing about it and we love it and we cherish it because that's where we see our Savior accomplishing payment for our sins. What does this mean for us? Let's land with three points of application. Here's the first. We've hinted at it along the way. First, rejoice in full assurance. Christian, sleep well tonight in the love of God. You are so loved. And if you want a little picture of the greatness of love of Christ for you take yourself back to that cross and look and look there at that heaving dying suffering twisted lonely figure on the cross and say why is he there why is he there he's there for me he's there to take my sins upon himself how great is his love for me rest Some of us Christians still, though we know these things to be true, will suffer with a kind of fear, maybe a kind of doubt that maybe back in in the the mind of God, God is still a little bit angry with me for my sin. There's an old hymn called Now Why This Fear? Written to address that very issue. And the, the hymn goes like this. It's one that I've recited to myself and many times and many seasons. He says, now why this fear and unbelief? He's talking to his heart here. He's talking to his soul. Why this fear and unbelief? Has not the father put to grief his spotless son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin canceled on the cross? What's the answer to that question? He won't punish you for sins that have already been paid for. That's the beauty of what this song is conveying. The righteous judge cannot condemn you for a debt of sin that's already been paid. Rest, Christian. Rest and rejoice in the full assurance you're loved. The song goes on. Complete atonement you have made. And by your death fully paid the debt your people owed. No wrath remains for us to face sheltered in His saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. Second, second point of application, we're going to rejoice in full assurance. Second, we're going to fuel up to fight sin. Fuel up to fight sin by reflecting on the imputation of your sin to Jesus Christ. This is ammunition for the devil. When he comes to you with accusations when he comes to you with your guilt, you have to know how to fight. And the way you fight is by going back to the truth about what God has declared about your sin. Not what Satan says about your sin, but what God has said about your sin. You say, what do you mean? I like using what John Piper has called gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt. Write those words down if you're a note taker. And use this as battle against sin in your life. Gutsy guilt. Guilt. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. First, when you are sinning, or you have, sorry, you have sinned. Let's say that. When you have sinned, you have fallen into conviction. You know you've sinned. You feel the weight of that sin. You feel bad for that sin. You say, how do I deal with it? Here's guts of guilt. First, you start by naming that sin. You you call the guilt what it is. You see it for all it is. You admit all its grossness. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't minimize it. Don't rationalize it. Look that sin dead in the eye. Call a spade a spade. Admit it for all that it is and say, yes, I have done that. And I'm guilty of that sin. Here's the gutsy part. The guilt part, it means look at the guilt in the face. Here's the gutsy part. Believe the promises of God about that sin. Defy the accuser what he's going to say to you about that sin be gutsy and look that sin in the eye, look it boldly in the face and say, that sin has been transferred to Jesus Christ. That sin was on the cross. That sin has been paid for. I will not face condemnation for that sin. Christ was condemned in my place. That sin won't drag me to hell because Jesus already paid the wrath of God in my place. Yes, that was a filthy sin that I committed. Yes, it was wicked. Yes, there is some vileness in that sin. But I will not be defined by that sin. I will not be judged by that sin. I will not be dominated by that sin. That sin has been removed from me. That sin no longer defines me. That sin has been put on Christ. That that sin is not mine any longer. Be gutsy about that. Look it in the eye and make claim those promises of your sin being removed from you and placed on Christ. Be like Luther. I love this quote. He says, when the devil throws our sins up at us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Don't you love Luther? Does this mean, he goes on, does this mean that I shall be sent to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know the one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You look that sin in the eye and say, yeah, I deserve death and hell. I deserve it true. That's exactly the case. If I were to pay for my own sins, I'd be in hell today. But what of it? My sin's already been paid for. It's already been done. It's accomplished. It's finished. God no longer has any wrath left for me to face. Here's our third application. Move forward in sacrificial obedience. Now move forward in sacrificial, risk-taking, zealous, fervent, all in obedience to your Savior, King. I think there are many. There might be ballpark in this, just kind of estimating, going off anecdotes and whatnot. I think there's a lot of people, probably a lot of teenagers and college-age students and a lot of pe- young, young men and women who, they, they've, they've gotten enough of the gospel to start to feel a zeal to, to do something for Jesus. They want to give their life to him. They want to volunteer. They want to march with their king into battle. They're willing to do what it takes. And then they fall into some sort of sin pornography, addiction, theft, deception, lust. And they feel shame. They cover their shame. In the dreams that they maybe once had to serve Jesus are being hidden. They wouldn't dare try to serve him now. In the voice of the devil, the voice of the accuser is whispering all along, Oh, how shameful are you? You couldn't possibly do anything of any value to the kingdom. You couldn't possibly help anyone. You can't possibly amount to anything. You're never going to do anything for God. No, the shame only increases, and that wet blanket is laid on them, that blanket of hopelessness. The fires of their zeal are put out, their sin is hidden, service is neglected, shame abounds, and with all the shame that increases, they're only tempted to hide more sin. Does that describe you? Maybe at one point in your life you had great aspirations, but there has been something that's derailed you, It's been your own sin. You just feel like you're in a downward spiral of shame that you don't know how to get out of and listen. You have to grasp the richness of the gospel. All those sins that you're so ashamed of, that you are hiding from everybody, that no one else knows, they're on the cross. They're not defining you anymore. They are not your identity at all. They really, truly, actually have been removed from you, and they have been put on Jesus, and he was punished in your place. They have no power over you anymore. They don't define you at all anymore. You are Innocent, And what we're going to talk about next week is that not only that, the perfect, pure holiness of Jesus Christ has been credited to your account. That when God sees you, not only does he see all your sins gone and paid for, not even associated with you anymore, he also sees the perfect righteousness of his Son on you. You don't have to walk and wallow in shame. You don't have to... Nag with this guilt that's always bringing you down. You have been forgiven. You have been clothed. You have been loved. You have been welcomed. It's time for you, if you're in that description that I've just laid out for you, it's time for you to get out of the shame, to talk to God first about this amazing gospel he's offered you. Then to look people in the eye and say, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. But here's what Christ has done for me. And here's how I'm moving forward in obedience because I am not going to let my sins define me any longer. If there would be an uprising of people in our church that would be so convinced of the gospel that they would feel no shame whatsoever to confess their sins that are not even theirs anymore. What a healthy church we would be. There's two kinds of church health. One's Pharisaic church health everyone's fine. And in a church like that, everything looks really fine. How you doing? I'm fine. How's life at home? Fine. How's your walk with the Lord? We're fine. How's your marriage? We're fine. How's your kids? Everything's fine. That's a church that's not all that messy. It's also a church that's not doing much for the Lord. Real church health looks at verses like this and they go, our sins have been collectively transferred to Christ. All those who are his have been removed. Their sins have been removed from them. Their sins have been put on Christ. We are no longer defined by these things. Let's let's walk in the light. Let's confess our sins to one another. The way you know you're growing in your understanding of the gospel is your willingness to talk about your sin. Because you will be so convinced that the sin is no longer yours. So you can talk about it without feeling a need to defend yourself. When we get this, we move forward in sacrificial love and obedience. Christmas is about the birth of Christ. But I want us this season to take a look at the cradle under the shadow of the cross. And to think when you sing songs about a baby, when you see nativity sets with a child, when you're thinking about this incarnation, I also want your eyes to shift over to that bloody, lonely, twisted figure on the cross and say, this is why he came. This is what he has done, to take my sin, to put it on himself so that I can be totally and perfectly purified by his perfect gospel. This is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And if you're not a Christian, you haven't turned from your sin to trust in Christ, you don't have to reform yourself and to become a little bit better before you can come. You come to Christ right now. And by faith, you embrace him as your savior. And all your sins are in that moment removed from you. And you are welcome. Welcome to the family of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. The miracle of the incarnation brings us to awe and wonder. But then to reflect of what you came to do on that cross convinces us even more about the greatness of your love for us. Let us worship you purely this season. Let those of us who might be captured by shame, guilt, fear, set free by the great doctrine of the imputation of our sin to Christ. And Lord, may we, as we rejoice in all that you've done, bring you much glory this season. In Christ's name.